Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode number three of the second season of the Cannabis Minority Report podcast, powered by the National Cannabis Industry Association. I am filling in for your regular host today, uh, Khadija Adams, who is the founder of Girl Get That Money, a business empowerment coaching and consulting firm, and the Green Street Academy, where, we te- where they teach you the basics of investing in cannabis stocks. I'm filling in for Khadija today because she is on the road. And she basically asked me to step in. I am the person in charge of the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at the NCIA. So I'm often behind the scenes. And uh, today I get to be out here in front. <laughs> so um, the, uh, the goal of the Cannabis Minority Report is to share weekly news updates about minorities in the cannabis, CBD, and hemp industries. We interview minority entrepreneurs, minority-owned companies, companies that support social equity, social equity applicants, and a host of other cannabis industry leaders and pioneers. Joining me today is a very special guest, Lance Nixon, a social equity applicant in Colorado. When we return from our commercial break, we'll catch you up on the latest news about minorities in cannabis, and we'll learn more about Lance's journey into the cannabis industry. It's a very fascinating one, so you won't want to miss that. Uh, If you're watching on Facebook, now is a great time to hit that share button. Now is a, now, <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Some technical difficulties there. <laughs> and uh, we'll be right back after these messages. We need to make sure that we get minorities and African-Americans, people that have been affected by the war on drugs, indigenous people, brown and black people holistically needs to be a part of this conversation. With the help of NCIA and being an Evergreen member, we believe that we can push this agenda forward. Cannabis business owners, entrepreneurs that really see the bigger picture to say, let's push this agenda forward. We can't do this without you. We need to make sure that our voices are heard. Okay, so we hope you do join us in San Francisco at the Cannabis Business Summit and Expo. I'm a little bit partial to this one. It's my hometown. And uh, in my opinion, the epicenter of cannabis, although I know everybody thinks differently, uh, depending on where you're from, because everybody's cannabis uh, industry and cannabis culture is definitely powerful around the country and around the world. That's the beauty of this plant. So um, jumping now into the news today, uh, we're going to start with um, the number one story, which I'm really happy to talk to you guys about, is uh, Latina cannabis CEO won a Silicon Valley veteran as a seed investor to their $50 million venture capital fund aimed at minorities. The People's Group Fund seeks to tip the balance of capital towards minorities in the cannabis trade. Cannabis company CEO, Christine De La Rosa, has won seed backing from the family office of the Silicon Valley investor for her debut $50 million venture capital fund. The People's Group Fund will deploy between $250,000 to over a million dollars per investment to cannabis businesses owned by women, African-Americans, indigenous people, and people of color. I have a quote here from Christine. The cannabis industry was created by black and brown people in the informal market. My company came out of the legacy market and transitioned into the legal market. We're building an ecosystem through the fund to invest in really amazing founders with really great existing businesses or business startups. I'm going to add to this the fact that Christine De La Rosa has been, uh, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with her for the last couple of years on the DEI committee for the NCIA, and she's just been an amazing woman to work with and watch work 
She's the new chair of the committee. And I just can't wait to see what she's going to accomplish uh, in so many different capacities, uh, especially what she's going to help us do at, here at NCIA. So really awesome. I was so excited when I saw that news uh, come out and just really excited to share that with everybody and really looking forward to see what kind of companies are going to go ahead and be able to get that kind of backing from such an amazing entrepreneur and all the systems and processes that she's really helped to put in place for people in these communities. Um, our next story is uh, about uh, Chris Weber. So NBA Hall of Famer Chris Weber breaks ground on players only holdings, a $50 million cannabis facility in Detroit. Chris Weber, NBA Hall of Famer Chris Weber, by the way, and co-founder of Weber Wild Impact Fund, uh, today, or this was last week, uh, launched Players Only Holdings, a new $50 million cannabis operations and training facility in Detroit's Corktown neighborhood. Players Only is a Black-owned business co-founded with entrepreneur Lavetta Willis, focused on four strategic business areas, real estate development, cannabis cultivation, brand partnerships, and creative content development and management. So really going about it strategically and hitting it from the angles that matter. The state-of-the-art 180,000 square foot players only facility will feature a 60,000 square foot cultivation, an 8,000 square foot dispensary, and a private cannabis consumption lounge. The business is expected to create hundreds of new jobs in the Detroit metro area over the next three years. And during the groundbreaking, Weber also announced the expansion of Cookies U into Detroit and an exclusive distribution partnership with leading Michigan operator Gage Growth Corp for players only branded cannabis products. So really amazing to see, again, another entrepreneur just making strides and really looking to create opportunity for lots of other folks, uh, especially there in Michigan. So number three uh, story that we have here today is not such a, uh, a shiny uh, example of where we're doing things well. Uh, the third story here today that uh, to report on is the fact that um, according to, uh, where is this from, uh, the Journal of the American Metal Association received, re released a study that found that blacks, black folks are still getting arrested at higher rates for marijuana position, possession, even in states where it's legal. It doesn't even matter if, if, it's, uh, if it's been legalized, basically, right, whether it's been uh, made adult use or not. Black folks are still getting arrested for marijuana possession unjustifiably. And um, even though 53% of whites and 46% of blacks report weed use, black folks are still more than four times likely to be cuffed for possession. Uh, this is research that goes back over the last decade and um, as different states have come online. So, you know, this is something that, you know, it's, it's good to celebrate all of the things that are happening in cannabis uh, across the country, but we also can't turn a blind eye to the fact that in states that adult use is coming online, folks are still going to jail, folks are still in jail, and new folks are still being arrested. So this is something that, you know, is definitely troublesome. And um, over here at NCIA, you know, as a DEI person here at, at the company, at the organization, we definitely are, are, are committed to doing what we can. But I think one of the biggest things we can is really tell people and make sure that people know and and, um, and continue to create more opportunities. So with that said, um, sorry, just it gets me when I know that this is what's happening in our country still. So um, moving on now, uh, we will be taking another uh, commercial break here. And when we return, we are speaking with Lance Nixon, a social equity applicant in Colorado. 
So if you are watching on Facebook now, it's a great time to hit that share button or better yet, tag some of your friends. We'll be right back after these messages. I am the cannabis industry. 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 We are proving that regulation works. Welcome back. Uh, and we are back here now with Lance Nixon, social equity applicant out of Denver, Colorado. Lance is originally from Gary, Indiana, and is a legacy operator turned social equity applicant in Denver. Lance learned the business of cannabis via the underground market from his older cousins. But it wasn't until 1998 when Lance started college in Savannah, Georgia, at a predominantly white institution that he went into cannabis distribution, where he put the skills he'd learned to use. The income he earned covered his expenses and afforded him the opportunity to successfully earn and complete his Bachelor of Fine Arts degree with a focus on 3D animation. Here to take us on his cannabis journey is Lance Nixon. Lance, welcome to the Cannabis Minority Report podcast. How are you doing today? And uh, yeah, tell us about your journey in the cannabis industry. Oh, I'm good, man. I'm good. Um, so, yeah, like you said, I'm originally from Gary, Indiana. And um, when I went to college in Savannah, Georgia, uh, is when I started needing to have to have some kind of other household. Uh, uh, that was the first time I was around, like, uh, wealth <laughs> like real wealth and uh and uh but it was but that was just for them not me and i just uh just experienced a whole different uh, culture and uh learned about a whole different types of, of things that i would have never learned in gary indiana you know just um other races other cultures uh art um and it just broadened my eyes to a lot of things um business even because even like Though I was going to school for 3D animation, I was still trying to figure out um, how to pay bills at the time, like uh, how to, uh, you know, just because I didn't try to find a job that I could do and still do school, you did. And uh, that one kind of landed in my lap, but uh, it benefited me. So I just rolled with it. And by the time I graduated, as much as I still like art and all, um, I just was profitable at it and successful at it. and. I ended up staying in Savannah for a few years after that. And then my plan was to try to move to California because I got a buddy that uh, they used to live there who was from Savannah, who I met in Savannah. And uh, he was in the uh, cannabis business. And so, but then I like cannabis is really, I mean, California is really expensive. <laughs> and so as far as I got far west as I could get in another state where it was legal was Denver. So I kind of ended up here. And when I got here, I first had to get my badge and I had to get some paperwork from uh, Savannah, Georgia, because I caught a, a, a drug case in that while I was in Savannah, Georgia. And um, so I had to get the paperwork. So to, let's, um, I'm sorry I cut you off, man. But um, I want to talk about Savannah and, and that situation a little bit more, because I think this is an important uh, note here is. You, know, you mentioned that going to school down in Savannah, you're surrounded by all this wealth, um, a lot of opportunity, but also it sounds like, um, you know, lo and behold, financial aid maybe wasn't enough to just cover all your bills, right? Absolutely not. Right. Now, uh, I wasn't, it wasn't a cheap college at all. <laughs> and so they gave me what they could and I had a bunch of, 
I still have some student loans uh, years later, but uh, I have so much student debt. I mean, uh, private loans. I had all the institutional loans. Uh, yeah, it still didn't cover everything. Um, and I think so something else you mentioned there is you had you also ran into some trouble with in doing what you needed to do in order to get through school because what other options are there, right? Because working a six-dollar-an-hour job isn't exactly going to pay those bills either, especially when you're trying to be a good student. So what are you left with? And this, I think, is a common thing with folks that go to school where they maybe don't have the resources that some of their, their classmates might have, and they end up having to basically resort to alternative activities, which then, you know, now you're in the crosshairs. You then get the arrest, which can oftentimes lead to you getting kicked out of school in the first place, right? Even though all those other folks there with the money are the ones paying you for that product <laughs> and enjoying that product, right? And using their parents' money to, 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 to enjoy that product, right? True story. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. I just wanted to kind of bring a little attention to that because I think it's something that people don't always necessarily understand the connections between how this war on drugs even filters into the educational institutions in that way. Um, and so you left school with the financial aid and the debt that um, a lot of folks do leave school with, but you also left with the legal problems that maybe not everybody else leaves with too. So I didn't, I didn't, um, I, didn't catch, I didn't catch that case until after college, but I was uh, I graduated college at that point, but I was still staying in Savannah, Georgia. And when I first graduated college, like the jobs that I wanted in 3D animation were all in California, and. A lot of um, my other classmates would do this internship, which was necessary. And so their parents would just pay for them to pay, have rent in California and pay for them to eat and not have to have a job that pays. And they would work that job to intern then get, and I couldn't afford to do that when I graduated. So it kinda, I was kind of stuck in Savannah financially until I could afford to, I got as far as Denver. <laughs> I got I got out. But I, I knew it. I know, especially after this four years in Denver, that I never want to live in another state that is not legal. Yeah. Because, Absolutely. So, yeah, thanks for that clarifying that. Yeah. Tell me more about then Denver. When you got to Denver, how did that how did that go for you? You so said you had to get your badge. Yeah. After I got my little um, paper sent to me, uh, my paperwork from um, Savannah, Georgia, which was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. <clears throat> I thought I remember the probation officer telling me that I was going to meet like lawyers. To, to complete that process, but I just called, I guess I found the right lady at the right time uh, when I called one day and she helped me and I just had to send her like $3 for a form. And I used that form in order to, and submitted it with my badge application and was able to get my badge to work in the industry. And the first job I got was a temp job and it was a temp job within the cannabis industry. So I worked at a bunch of different places, a bunch of different grows, mostly behind the scenes. And um, it was really hard to try to cross over to get into the retail side, to get in front of people because uh, I mean, I think race has something to do with it for sure. But I, I finally got to that side of it once I started bud tending. So I'm the person that, you know, but you know, that sells you the butt, the cannabis when you come, come in this cannabis dispensary. But um, then I worked my way up to management. And when I was in management, I was doing a lot of more intake in the product and things like that and learning more about the um, corporate side of the dispensary. But, um, I was getting paid less. Like I, I fell for that whole salary thing. <laughs> and um, and so it wasn't all it was cracked up to be being uh, the manager. And another thing is 
since I have so much experience that I couldn't really talk about beforehand because those business owners aren't from the legacy market and they look at you like a criminal. If you was to tell them that you know this and how you know what you know. And so I had to keep the secret for so long that I ended up like working for all these different companies and people where they had me doing things that were like not profitable and didn't make sense to me because I had an understanding of it that most of my other coworkers didn't. And so I, at that point I started trying to figure out a way, or I know you had to be like basically a millionaire, but trying to figure out a way to be an owner in the business so I can make my own decisions about that instead of just following somebody else's orders about that. And that social equity program gave me like, you know, made me think that it was possible. So as soon as I started hearing about it here in Denver, I started trying to figure out how to become a part of it. And that process wasn't easy at all. Like the applications are really legalese <laughs> written and like you, if you're not a lawyer, it's really hard to understand. I had like some family members try to help me out with it um, and they couldn't help me, they tried. And I was, then I started, at that point I started looking for like cannabis attorneys to try to help me with it. Or um, And then I eventually found some people. I mean, I found some people before that that, that wasn't the ones for me that was trying to charge me way too much money to just help me fill out the application and not even submit it or to submit it, but they couldn't guarantee anything beyond that, but trying to charge me thousands and thousands of dollars. And I eventually found somebody that, was, that helped me and that was, that was Khadijah. And um, she been helping me. I'm, I've made so many strides since she's been helping me that uh, I'd say that's the way to go, even though, yeah, I'd say that's the way to go. <laughs> it's been working. I, I can almost see the finish line, but it's not a hundred percent up and running yet. It's not making any profit yet. That's when it's a hundred percent real. But right. uh, so, are you are you up and operational yet in Denver, or are you still getting all the I's and T's dotted? Once I got into the social equity program, I found out that they don't help you with like any capital, and um, so it's basically you trying to start a business. Um, like you would anyway, except for the difference between that is, is that any other business you were trying to start, you go get a bank loan for your business. And they, yeah, but I can't because it's a cannabis business. So I have to try to find like um, partners. And I've met with a few and I haven't solidified one 100% yet, but my other partner is, is Khadijah though. And, and C.E. Hutton, they helping me. And they, um, yeah, I'm still looking for investors and all, but I got the license to, through the social equity program, to own and operate any um, Colorado cannabis business within Colorado. And then beyond that is like two or three other um, licenses I need in order to go into delivery. And I, the reason why I picked delivery is because it's basically the cheapest one that you can get your foot in the door in the cannabis business to have a, a license on it. So it's not just the license that I have, but it's like two or three in order for me to actually be, be able to start doing deliveries. So, okay. so it sounds like you're getting kind of all the groundwork and the foundation and the paperwork, which is, I think that's, uh, again, you mentioned, uh, you know, in other industries, you can get a bank loan. I think the other thing that also gets missed here sometimes is what you just talked about, which is that it takes all, you know, other businesses, you, what, you feel like a one page, uh, you know, uh, you know, interested in doing business, LLC, all that kind of stuff yeah. in your local municipality and you're done in this industry. 
you're already spending how many thousands of dollars just to be able to get the initial paperwork done so that you can operate legally. Um, so, I mean, that, that's another uh, issue here. So, um, once you do get all of that figured out and you are able to do delivery, what's your vision for, uh, for your business and, and for, uh, you know, for, for the delivery company, basically, that you're working on? Um, so if I so the, the way it's written in the law, I have to work with a retail operator to uh, to take the orders, and so I can't just go straight to a grow and ha- and have pro- get product, and then I would have like to need a warehouse to store product if I wanted to um, to try to do that without a retailer. So I guess we're going the retail route just because of, uh, they they have the facility already, and uh, I. So the previous um, agreements I not 100% agreed to, but looked at and uh, other and potential investors was like telling me that I had to work with only their, their retail store for a certain amount of years, delivering only their product and no one else's. But we haven't made up our mind whether or not we're 100% going with the investor or whether or not we're going do it independently. And if we do, then I would like to try to have more than one uh, retailer that I could do deliveries for at a time so there'd be no downtime at all. And as soon as I get past the point where I can't do all the deliveries myself, then I want to get some employees to try to uh, keep it up. And if we're doing deliveries for more than one uh, dispensary, then it's kind of like... we're helping the, the industry get their product out to a larger market. That pe- and then some people just can just afford the convenience of not having wanting to go to the dispensary. And I swear, I, I was working at a dispensary. I didn't see them wait in line in the snow before. <laughs> but I mean, I'm positive if some people have the extra money and was willing to not have to wait in line, they would do that. And sometimes, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, places like California, delivery is thriving, right? Um, so, I mean, you know, delivery is definitely a viable model. Uh, we do have concerns about what happens when Amazon comes into play, right? But I think that, you know, if you have... Uh, you we know, drones. We drones, exactly. Um, so, you know, how, how do you answer that question, right? Like, what happens when, we, when Amazon or, or, or these big guys do come into the industry? You know, do you see delivery being something viable? Do you have a strategy for that? Uh, big business is taking over cannabis already right now. And so because of my experience of, uh, in the black market got me, I had so much competition constantly that I'm used to that. And like uh, in a way that uh, the majority of the owners now are ex-businessmen and I'm part of this culture. And so I'm, I'm used to that as far as the business side of things. But on the other hand, I feel like people would still choose to deal with somebody who is uh, of this culture like I am over the uh, option of somebody that's like the, uh, the Walmart of the thing that's just taking over and you don't, not, it's not personal. There like, you go. It's, it's me. <laughs> no, I hear you. Yeah, it's that personal touch. It's being connected to the culture. It's you, right? It's like you, and, and that's what it sounds like to me. That's what allowed you to really move up through the ranks in this industry in the first place is that you actually do understand the culture you come from within the culture of cannabis going back decades and really your whole life, it sounds like. So, no, that, that's always good to hear. Um, you know, I, I, always, I always ask that question and, and uh, you know, it, it, it usually is one of two answers, right? It's either somebody that does understand it, I think, like yourself, 
or somebody else that goes, oh, yeah, I, I don't know, you know, and it's like, well, that I don't know is not a good plan in cannabis. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, man, so let me, uh, let's see, I got a couple questions here that uh, Khadija did supply me with. Um, what is your most important need right now? What are you in need of as a business right now trying to get off the ground? I suppose it'd be capital. But um, I, like I told you, I've had some previous offers in the past. All, like all money ain't good money. So I can't, uh, just because somebody wants to offer me something in their contract, it might be written in a way where I don't feel like it benefits them more than me because all these people are from the business world. And man, that's cutthroat. Like I, I, I'm from the black market, but this, this legal business world is more cutthroat. They just got nicer suits on. Uh, <laughs> they, they do what they would never do to you on the street corner, right in your face. Um, but uh, didn't even dream of it. <laughs> <laughs> there was a certain uh, group of rules back uh, in that market that uh, kept people in check that don't exist in the legal market. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, yeah. The uh, the people can self police themselves pretty well when it comes to behaving right. And I think that one of the things we've seen in the cannabis industry that really bothers the hell out of me over the last several years, it's because it's becoming industry is exactly what you're talking about. You know, people just uh, not acting right. And there's no, what's the repercussion? It's like, well, sue me, you know, that's kind of the, and well, sue me in cannabis. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, that was why one of the first things I did when I, when I started my entrepreneurial journey, cannabis and actually just entrepreneurialism in general was I went and just started getting attorneys. So I have like lots of attorneys now and it just makes me feel so much better, you know, knowing that I can call one of these people. Right. But that was, uh, you know, that, that's definitely, uh, you know, an issue and a concern. Um, so, you know, um, switching gears a little bit into, uh, uh, switching gears, but, you know, talk, drilling down a little bit more on the social equity side of things. Right. Um, okay. Cause you've talked about that, you know, you have a, you know, a social equity, uh, status in there in Denver, Colorado, um, you know, you mentioned that there's no funding for the program at this point in time, right? And I know from talking with the folks in Colorado, that's something that they want to change potentially. Um, but aside from just there being more money in the program, what other changes would you like to see in the current program for social equity in Colorado or in Denver? Well, um, so one of those first uh, lawyers I reached out to that I decided not to go with that was charging me way more than I could afford, pointed out some things to me. I feel like it was really being discouraging, but it didn't work. But I pointed out to me about how there is no, it's no specific, nothing in the social equity program about race. And the fact that it's obvious that the black and brown community has been more negatively affected. The fact that, so since we know that, and this program was supposed to be set up to help us, then I feel like that, that race should be somewhere in the in the process for uh, being in there. He was telling me, <laughs> I ain't gonna tell you his name, but he was telling me him and three of the other lawyers in that law firm were looking into the social equity themselves. I feel like he was really trying to discourage me, but he was letting me know that to be in this program, you don't have to be poor and black. And he's right. Right. No, absolutely. And I think that's what we've seen in a lot of other states, like look at Illinois, for example, where they find the social equity applicant, they prop them up. But in reality, the business is basically just set to transfer over to the nice, rich, uh, you know, whoever the hell had the money to, to, to back them. Um, I know we look at a state um, like New York, and I'm not saying this is good or bad, or right? I just want to be clear on this, but say like New York, where I've, I heard that 
um, they're actually going to allow uh, women will qualify for certain things. And I know Massachusetts could do that too. And I'm not saying if it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it definitely is more um, wide open, so to speak, than we thought originally when social equity started in the halls of, you know, Sacramento and San Francisco and Oakland and places like that. Um, like it was to, definitely like to be more specific. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I do know that one of the things that I've heard is that it's, it's hard to label the language that way because then it can be, you know, held up in courts forever and it's not like legal to do it that way, but I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know about that. But aside from that, look, it, even if you, we do get the right folks uh, with the licenses um, is there something else? Cause like, I guess I'm fishing for something here, but what else would you like to see happen? Because I'm just going to put it this way in Colorado, you know, it's a state where there was no real, it's not only that they didn't have social equity because social equity didn't exist several years ago is that they also made, uh, laws that made it so that folks with felons with felonies could not participate in the industry, right? They kept the certain folks out of the industry for several years. It's a total and so now you you can't have a felony if you get you can't get a badge to work in the industry if you have a felony you can't have a badge to own a a company in the industry if you have a felony the only way you can be in a social equity program is if you your siblings or your parents have had a, a cannabis arrest so you have to have a felony to be in the program but you can't get a badge so you can't be Oh yeah. So the fact right. that I was able to get it expunged and get a badge like makes me like even more rare than people that have badges and people that are in the social equity program to be able to like do both because it's written to where you're not supposed to be able to. Right. And I think that's what I was looking to hear is, uh, and it's unfortunate, but I mean, this is what you hear way too often in every state is that the catch 22s are absurd with this programs. Um, and so I think it's, it's just good to hear it from, from the folks directly being impacted by it, that you're going through that program. I can get out there all day and tell folks about that, but it's great to hear it from you that, yeah, this is a whole roundabout catch 22 situation. So thanks for sharing that. You still gotta be um, rich. Yeah. And like the yeah. program kind of made me feel like it was possible if you wasn't rich, but the more I get into it, you still gotta be rich. <laughs> or have a, so, a have a, a rich business partner yeah absolutely because like the, they don't waive the fees for the application fees even not to say that you don't get the license yeah so let's see let me do a time check here how are we doing on time over here um we, we doing good on time vince okay awesome so um let me uh i want to uh, like just you know, now we get into the social equity conversation and sometimes things get a little bit heavy, a little bit sticky because it is this kind of nebulous area of what is going to happen here. So, you know, I think one of the most important things as, as campreneurs is knowing and having a vision of where you're going, kind of regardless of what happens with the social equity regulations and stuff. So, Lance, where do you see yourself five years from now? Really, I see my, I feel like I told you I can see the finish line on this delivery thing. And once they think it up and pop it, because it's not, not that many people doing it in Denver yet because they're just now starting to allow it. And they're saying that you can't be in it unless you're in the social equity program. So that's another one of those case 22s was like, yeah. So um, so I, I see I see myself being able to, but in five years from now, I want to do, I have two more businesses I'm trying to do in the cannabis space. And that's the grow and the dispensary. 
And instead of using investors like I'm using this first time, the next time I start a cannabis business, it'll be through the profits of, of this delivery business. And so by five years, I expect to be opening one of those, either a grow or a dispensary. The reason why I like to grow so much is because when I worked in all those dispensaries, you have a grower, you can, you can all those dispensaries are your customers. And if, if you have a dispensary, then you just have the, the, the customers of the dispensary. But like uh, certain grows had like amongst connoisseurs understood that they could go to several dispensaries and get that particular flower from that particular grow. So like, I feel like it's just like a wider market, but I want to do both. Okay. I appreciate that. That's good, man. Man with a plan. And I think that's, like I said, so important in this industry. I mean, you may have to pivot a million times to get there, but if you have the plan, you know where you're going to, that's really important. So appreciate you sharing that. Uh, before we cut out today, is there um, anything else that you'd like to share? I, I, I feel like we didn't get to get too far into the story of the journey itself. Um, you know, so you, I know you stopped in Colorado there. Any other interesting stories? I mean, just uh, something you'd like to share with the audience today. Um, just um, that it's, it's, it's hard and it's a bunch of barriers and hurdles they keep throwing in your face. But I know there's a few, so I know that it's possible. And uh, don't get discouraged because <laughs> I haven't yet. And when I when it's more successful, then I can say that look, I did it. But I know it has been done and it can be done. So yeah, there's a bunch of barriers up in front of you, but like just keep pushing because I don't want to be the only one at the table. It'd be lonely. Who <laughs> <laughs> ain't got no yeah. seat? <laughs> right on. Awesome, man. Well, uh, Lance, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, let me see. Where are we at in this? Uh, in, yeah, Lance. Yeah, these are five with the notes right there. Lance, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we definitely love to have you back on the show in the future to check on your progress. Uh, definitely don't be a stranger. Let us know how things are going. We really wish you much success with the launch of your new business. I know you're in good hands with Khadija Adams and C. E. Hutton and all those folks helping you there. And anything NCIA can do, to help you out um, on that path, we do have our social equity scholarship program. So let's stay in touch about that and see if it, you know, that's something that's a good fit for you. It provides you with one year of free membership into NCIA and all the benefits to come along with that, as well as some unique benefits that we've stood up for our social equity program specifically. So anything we can do to help, definitely want to help you along the way because, uh, you know, personally, I have a real passion for helping legacy folks be able to break into this industry in the way that they want to and not just simply as, you know, the bud tender somewhere and contributing all their knowledge, building somebody else's business while, you know, you're still basically like, you're the knowledge, you're the con connection to the culture. We need to make sure that these, you, you're, the, you're the folks that, that, that make it in this industry. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Thanks for Absolutely. having me. Absolutely. Um, so let's see. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, be sure to subscribe to the Cannabis Minority Report on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts on your, or on your favorite platforms to make sure you don't miss it. Instead of a final commercial this week, we were live in Detroit last week interviewing Mary Jane Oatman of ICANC and THC Magazine. Mary Jane is a real uh, serious advocate uh, in the indigenous cannabis space. And so uh, we're going to cut to a roll of that. So Mary Jane, 
That's Maylee. So tell me more. Tell our audience more about you. First of all, welcome to the Cannabis Minority Report. From what I hear, you have Cannabis Indigenous, right? Indigenous Cannabis Coalition, our 501c3 that was founded in 2019 to elevate tribal hemp and cannabis uh, economies, cultures, and communities. Fantastic. So I take it that you are an indigenous woman? I am. I'm a proud member of the Nez Perce tribe of Idaho, but our cultural and geographic homelands span across Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana. Wow, that is pretty interesting. So tell us about the coalition. What do you do and um, what do you need? The protection of tribal sovereignty in cannabis is really important for the Indigenous Cannabis Coalition. Preservation of data is, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that we've been working on in this space. And uh, one of the primary ways that we do that is through Tribal Hemp and Cannabis Magazine, which is uh, our collector's issue um, to preserve stories of what's happening during this very historic time. And so THC Magazine, as it's called, um, we're doing a call out for writers that want to write about the amazing things happening in indigenous communities as well as the issues and challenges you know okay. we can't just put all of the you know put put all of the the fun stuff forward and all of the the success there have been a lot of mine you know minds to step on and a lot of challenges and so uh, you know to show showcase how tribes have overcome that adversity mm -hmm. is also really important so a call for writers is definitely uh, something that we're looking for and on the indigenous cannabis coalition side uh, you know we're small but mighty so building our infrastructure uh, we're working on a fund development campaign right now so just be on the lookout for oh, that nice. but we we really need to build our resources so that okay. we can expand our our work that we're doing but protection of tribal sovereignty through the preservation of indigenous story and showcasing that to the world Absolutely. Well, you are an absolutely beautiful sight to see today. And I have to tell you that I'm so impressed by what you're doing, especially for indigenous people. If not for indigenous people, honestly, I don't believe any of us would be here. In fact, it's kind of hard to take in that we're even allowed to still be here under these conditions because it's really not our land. You know, um, it, it's land that belongs to you, regardless as to whose name is on the damn deed. Right. And so um, I want to thank you for stepping up, stepping up and showing out. Well, I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of work that we have to do ahead. And the way that I really look at this is, you know, we can't turn back time. If we could, things would be a lot bit, a lot different as far oh, as yeah. the, the alliances and and um, the um, the, the reality of what happened with those government negotiations with the treaties, yeah. zero of which have been upheld. But what I do know is that our BIPOC communities have a lot of shared agricultural trauma to heal from. Mm -hmm. And um, plant medicine is love. And many of our communities, you know, we, we pass along stories from our grandmothers. And so honoring the wisdom of our, of our grandmothers and bringing love into this space is what our, our black and indigenous and people of color communities do for cannabis. And, and with that, I mean, it's just an innate quality of healing. And so uh, working together, I think, is in our best interest. And uh, Absolutely. Collaboration, yes. right? Just collaboration. I tell people all the time, collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. It beats the hell out of competition, doesn't it? Oh, most definitely. I mean, like right now, even some of the issues that we're facing with the holdup of the CARES Act funds for farmers, I did not know until I was listening to a podcast the other day that uh, around 1914, about 14% of this nation's land was in the hands of black farmers and they 
all lost it through unethical, yep. illegal, and immoral practices yep. that benefit people that are thriving in the industry, in mm -hmm. the cannabis industry mm -hmm. to this day. And so, you know, one of the other things that I really want to see happening is, you know, I see the Green Rush conversation just everywhere. Yeah. And for indigenous people, uh, the word rush kind of is triggering, you know, the gold rush created massive trauma to Mother Earth and to yeah. our environment. And mm -hmm. so let's not let's not move forward full throttle in this green rush when many of our indigenous communities are still trying to heal to this day from the gold rush. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us today. How do people actually reach out and subscribe to your magazine, subscribe to what you're doing? Okay, so that's an interesting question. So www.indigenouscannabiscoalition.com is how you can download free copies of the magazine. Okay. We publish 10,000 copies quarterly and we distribute them across Indian country. So all of my contact information is on the website, but it is a free distribution magazine. I've been able to be creative to create a sale, uh, you know, an ad template so that we get, get the ads in there to cover all of our costs and then distribute it free so that communities have access to education and advocacy materials. I love it. I stole this from Vince, my <laughs> producer. Yes, I, I love, love it. it. Too. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us. And we actually want to interview you again on Cannabis Minority Report in 2022. Want to check in on your progress, check in on if you need any funding or anything like that. So we will be in touch. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Queen. It's been an honor to be with you in this space. I tune into your show quite a bit even when i'm super busy and working it's always running in the background and now i get to meet the man behind the magic thank That's you so much right. thank you so much Great job. all right so um hopefully you enjoyed that that segment with mary jane altman she's really awesome and uh doing amazing things in the indigenous space and cannabis if you ever have a chance to check out one of her talks or her magazine or follow her on instagram like i definitely recommend doing so um so in the meantime, uh, definitely make sure you check out the NCIA's member news blog and the industry insights that includes our NCIA equity member spotlight series. Uh, this month's uh, spotlight is going to be on, I believe it was a, a recent guest of this podcast, uh, Nancy Doe of Endo Industries. So if you uh, check that episode out and you're interested in knowing a little bit more about Nancy, definitely be sure to check out the equity member spotlight that'll be released, I believe, this week, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so don't forget to download NCI's mobile app as well and join us at this year's NCIA Cannabis Business Summit taking place December 15th to 17th in my hometown, San Francisco, California. Tickets are available at CannabisBusinessSummit.com. You can also navigate there through the NCIA website. Special shout out to our new DEI sponsor, the People's Ecosystem uh, without the generous support of our sponsors, we would not be able to do what we're doing here today. So thank you very much. The mission of the DEI committee is to educate, advocate, engage, and empower the community of cannabis and its members by cultivating partnerships with other nonprofit organizations with similar goals, providing resources that create and sustain an environment that is inclusive, equitable, and diverse. We are committed to building a culture that respects our members and celebrates their contributions as we work together to strengthen all communities in cannabis. Do you know someone that you think should be interviewed on the Cannabis Minority Report? Then drop Khadijah a line at info at KhadijahAdams.com. So until next Monday, I'll go ahead and sign off the way Khadijah always does. Peace, love, and hippie stuff. Hey. 
NCIA's Cannabis Minority Report is a product of the National Cannabis Industry Association and NCIA's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. We are hosted every week by Khadijah Adams. Our executive producers are Aaron Smith and Vince Chandler. We are directed by Vince Chandler and produced by Bethany Moore. Please, please, please find out everything you can about the growing and equitable cannabis industry at thecannabisindustry.org.